Over the last uh, 30 plus years of attempting to walk out my faith with Jesus, one of the things that I've found over time is that Jesus is not as committed to my comfort as I am. (laughs) Actually, uh, he likes it, I believe, when I find myself in places where I'm uncomfortable. It just seems like continually I get to these places where he puts me at a crossroads, and he gives me an invitation, something that he wants me to do, something that he's calling me to. And I get to that place where I'm asking myself, can I do this? Am I enough? Do I have what it takes? Do I have what it takes? And now, there are those just naturally confident people out there. I hate them. <laughs> I am not like them. I don't, I don't hate them. I just don't relate to them. I'm not like them. I'm starting to think about all these places over my life where God has like pulled me into things that made me so uncomfortable. One of the, the biggest was I had just started out in ministry. I'd been serving with the ministry of Campus Crusade for Christ or crew for a uh, handful of years and moved here to Bozeman to be on staff and uh, was going to stay here and work with the director that was here for a lifetime. He's, when I moved here, he said, let's just grow old together. Well, he's here for one year and then he leaves. And they asked me to be the director. And here's what I knew would happen if you become the director. You have to stand up in front of people and you have to talk. And now you may not know this about me, but I had a deathly fear of public speaking. Like like everybody talks about that, but you don't know how deep this was for me. Uh, When I was in high school, I had to stand up at a student council event to our whole high school, probably 250 kids. And as I got up there, I got so nervous, and this is what would happen to me when I would stand up to speak, is my leg would start to shake like this. Well, I'm, I'm standing up there in front of the students, and my leg's starting to shake, and I can see people starting to giggle, and I'm thinking, this is getting really, really obvious, so I need to do something about this. So here was my amazing plan, is I'm going to put my weight on my leg so that it won't shake. And then pretty soon, my whole body was shaking, and I look out. I'm a sophomore in high school, and I look out at my high school, and people are just doubled over laughing at me. That'll scar you in life. You don't, into my 20s, it's it's not like I didn't want to give up and get up and give a message. I wouldn't even get up to give an announcement. If we had a retreat coming up, it's like, don't ask me to be in front of people. But now suddenly I found this place where I'm going to have to communicate regularly to people, and I'm asking the question, am 
I enough? I don't think my experience is just unique to me. Wherever you're at, in your relationship with Jesus, maybe you're even outside of a relationship with him, but what you're gonna know and experience is that that was what he continually does. He calls us out of our comfort zone. And if you want to go all in with Jesus, he is gonna stretch you in your faith. And you're gonna ask that question at one point or another, am I enough? And here's what I think Jesus would say to you. If you ask that question of him, Jesus, am I enough? I think he would tenderly maybe grab you by the face and he would look you right in the eyes and he would say, no, no, you're not enough, but I am enough. And when I'm with you, you're not just enough, you are more than enough to be anything and everything that I will ever call you to do. Jesus is enough to make us enough, even more than enough. I love the story that we get to look at today, a miracle of Jesus. And this is the the central message of this miracle, is that with Jesus, he can make us enough. And I believe that this was a message that was so important to the life and ministry of Jesus. That's why every gospel writer, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all of them, it's the only miracle outside of the resurrection that is recorded in all four gospels. We need this message. We're going to be in Mark chapter 6, but at the beginning of Mark chapter 6, I want to give you a little bit of context. The disciples have been sent out, and they are preaching the good news. And amazing things are happening in terms of lives being changed. They are healing people. People that needed healing, their bodies are being changed and redeemed. There is deliverance happening. They're casting out demons. Evil is on the run. They're seeing the power of God and the kingdom of God on display. And when we pick up this story, the disciples have come back and they just want to report to Jesus all that they're seeing God do through them. Matthew chapter 6, starting in verse 30. It's a longer story, but we're going to read the whole thing together. The apostles gathered around Jesus and reported to him all they had done and taught. Then, because so many people were coming and going that they had not even had a chance to eat, he said to them, come with me by yourselves to a quiet place and get some rest. So they went away by themselves in a boat to a solitary place. But many who saw them leaving recognized them and ran on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When Jesus landed and saw the crowd, he said, get down on the boat. You guys don't make eye contact with them. (laughs) No, that's not what he said. He had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. So he began to teach them many things. By this time, it was late in the day, so his disciples came to him and said, this is a remote place, they said, and it's already very late. Send the people away so that they can go to the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. See, the disciples are saying, Jesus, this is a great conference, but we need to let everybody know that on the agenda is lunch on your own. People need to go get their own food. 
But here's where the discomfort comes for the disciples because Jesus looks at them, but he answered, you, you give them something to eat. They said to him, that would take more than a half year's wages. Are we to go and spend that much on bread and give it to them to eat? How many loaves do you have? He asked, go and see. When they found out, they said, five and two fish. We know from John's account, this was just a little boy's lunch. Thousands of people, all they had was a little boy's lunch. Then Jesus directed them to have all the people sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups of hundreds and fifties. Taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and he broke the loaves. Then he gave them to his disciples to distribute to the people. He also divided the two fish among them all. They all ate and were satisfied. And the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces of bread and fish. The number of men who had eaten was 5,000. John tells us in his account that Jesus had a purpose in this miracle. He had something in his mind. It says that John tells us that Jesus knew what he had intended to do. He wanted to test their faith. We knew that that was true. And he creates this impossible situation for the disciples. There's too many people. There's not enough food. They don't have a plan. And Jesus said, you give them something to eat. Uncomfortable. Do I, do I have what it takes? He obviously puts them in a place where they are in over their head. Well, they get themselves into problem-solving mode. They start to think about, like, what would it take for us to go get some bread? So they all start thinking about how much money they have, and they start to figure out the number of people, and they're just like, it's, it's impossible. Eight months' wages it would take to feed everyone. We don't have that kind of walking around money. Strike one. And then Jesus asked them, what do you have? So I try to imagine this a little bit. Like, what did they do? Did they just comb the whole place and all they could come up with is a teenager that's got five small loaves and two fish? It's gotta be a teenager because they're always packing food. They're always hungry. I know what it's like to raise teenagers. Strike two. Jesus loves to get us to the place where we are at the end of our resources because it's only when we get ourselves to that place where the next step that we need to take, we can't take without him, that it's his power, his sufficiency that shows up in our lives. And that's what we need. We need to be put in those places far beyond our abilities. What's your next step? Brian talked about it. Maybe what is your next step that Jesus might be inviting you into right now? And you know what that is, but when you start to think about it, you start to think about that situation, you get uncomfortable. Because suddenly there's this level of fear that starts to raise up in you, this level of anxiety, all these question marks. Am I enough? Here's what I love 
about how God works in the lives of people. Is that he's willing to take us to this place of need so that he can show up. God loves underdogs. Jesus loves underdogs. Those that know that they don't have what it takes and they need him if they're gonna accomplish whatever it is that he's asking them to do. Think about the very beginning of the scriptures when we look at the life of Moses. Was there ever an underdog outside of Moses? No. Now we think about the amazing things that Moses did, but I, I think about that encounter that Moses had with God when, he, when God invites him out of the burning bush. God says, I am sending you to Pharaoh to free the people. And Moses is like, yes, awesome, I got this. No, that is not what Moses said at all. He's asking the question, am I enough? And he says it, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? He's just telling God, I don't have what it takes. And and then what am I gonna do? Who am I gonna tell the people? Who am I gonna tell the people who sent me? I am not enough. But God says, you tell them, I am sent you because I am enough, Moses. He said, but what if they don't believe me? He's just got excuse after excuse, question after question. Finally, he gets to the place where he says, pardon your servant. This is where I so relate to him. He says, Lord, I've never been eloquent, neither in the past nor since you have spoken to your servant. I am slow of speech and tongue. He's got excuses. So many excuses not to do what God was calling him to do. And here's what I believe. I believe God's heard all of our excuses about why we don't do the things that he calls us to do. And I love it. The very last thing that Moses said, he says, pardon your servant, Lord. Please send someone else. Moses answers. He's not just asking the question, am I enough? He's answering the question. And he's saying the answer is, I don't have enough. I am not enough, God. Send someone else. Am I enough? No. That's what Moses needed. He needed to know that he wasn't enough, but he needed to know that God was. Take the next step. Whatever it is that God is calling you, take the next step. It's the very beginning of the scriptures, but I love where things kind of land with another hero of the Bible, the Apostle Paul. Now, I can tell you, if you just go out and Google who have been some of the most influential people in all of human history, the Apostle Paul makes almost all of those lists. But how did Paul see himself? Paul saw himself as an underdog. Here's what he says, 1 Corinthians 2, starting in verse 1. He says, and so it was with me, brothers and sisters, when I came to you, I did not come with eloquence or human wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God, for I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Here's Paul. I came to you in weakness with great fear and trembling. My message and my preaching We're not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. You know what made Paul great? 
is that he knew that it wasn't him. Even with all of his learning, all the things that he brought to the table, he knew I'm an underdog and it is only as God shows up and works through me that I can be what God has called me to be. All of us are gonna have invitations from Jesus. There's gonna be big ones and there's gonna be little ones all along the way. But the question is, as those invitations come, how are we gonna look at those? Are we gonna look at those with a horizontal human viewpoint? Or are we gonna look vertical and have a divine viewpoint of all the circumstances and invitations that God gives us in our life? Here's what I mean when I, when I talk about this idea of a human horizontal viewpoint. I'm talking about viewing everything that's happening in and around your life through your eyes only only through ourselves and our limited view. How do I feel about that? What do I expect will happen? What do I think is going to go on? It's our limited view. What are my assumptions? And, and we, we start to take in the values of the world around us as well. It is a horizontal view. And when we just take the horizontal view, it's kind of like the disciples. We, we just see all the obstacles, all the things that we can't overcome in ourselves. But Jesus, in this story, invites us to look up, take a vertical viewpoint, a divine orientation to all the things. Take into account how God operates in this world and through people's lives. Don't just look at how humans do things. Factor God's in. Because if we just have that horizontal view, we're going to live too small of a story. We're not gonna live out what God has called us to. But when we start to have that vertical, divine perspective, we can live into a larger story. In three dimensions, Jesus asks us to go vertical with our thinking. Friday when I was finishing up this sermon, uh, my phone was buzzing. There were all these numbers that were calling my phone. And uh, if I don't have the number in my phone, I usually just uh, ignore it. But suddenly my oldest son's face came up on the phone and I answered it and he said, dad, you, there's some people trying to get a hold of you. Uh, you've got to take their calls. Josiah's been in, my other son, Josiah's been in an accident up on the ski hill. Uh, he had last run of the day, going to do a big old backflip, over-rotated, landed wrong, hip, hip dislocated. So I'm on the phone then, I'm talking to a ski patrol and they said, it doesn't look good, uh, but we're going to immobilize him, uh, meet him at the emergency room. It's a long wait at the emergency room. We went in there, and as the doctors were trying to help him, uh, they, were, they were trying to be really positive, but they said, this is going to be really difficult to try to get this hip back in place. If you know my son, he's a, a big kid, and he lifts a lot, and so he's super strong, and they just said, uh, the muscles are seizing up around the hip. I don't know that we're going to have the strength to be able to get this hip back in the socket without surgery. And they said, but we're going to give it a try. We're going to give it our best effort. But then they asked us, they just said, do you want to stay in the room with him? They said, because what we're going to have to do to him is going to cause extreme pain. And you probably don't want to watch your child go through that. 
And I was just thinking, I, I'm kind of a squeamish person anyway, but I, I'm not leaving this room. And Karma and I were just there praying, like, God, we need your help. God, we need your help. And they, I just watched these four people get around and they try to grab his leg. And when they grabbed his leg, one of them just kind of pulled a little bit and went like that. And he was just like, wait. He's like, I, I think it went back in the socket. And they're all kind of looking around like in disbelief because they didn't have to work up a sweat or anything. They told me they were going to work up a sweat trying to get this hip back in. They were dumbfounded. Like, how, how did this happen? We don't understand how this happened. Now, I know that there are probably some of you out there that are going to try to give me a medical explanation about why that happened the way it did. I know. I know that God intervened on our behalf. God answered our prayers. But I also want to say this. It doesn't always happen that way for me or for anybody. But we chose in that moment to go vertical. God, we need your help. We need something beyond ourselves in this moment. And I know that it could have been just as likely that we were sitting in that emergency room with a son that was paralyzed. But I would also want to go vertical then. God, we need your help. He needs your help. We need to look up. Always, every circumstance, every situation that we feel like is outside of our own resources, we've got to look up. We've got to go vertical with our faith. And this is what is interesting to me about this story, that the disciples didn't look vertical. I shared with you at the beginning for a reason. They had just been preaching and teaching, healing, casting out demons. They'd seen the power of God on display. If there was ever, a, and they were so excited to come back and tell Jesus all the things that God had been doing through them. And in that moment, none of them thought to look up and say, Jesus, you can do this. We don't, we don't have to worry about trying to do this ourselves. Jesus, you could do this. They need to look up, and we need to look up. Now, I'm not trying to bag on the disciples, like, look at them, they're so, they had so little faith. When I look at that story, I just think, that's me. That's me. I don't look up. When it seems like it should be so obvious for me to invite God's help into situations, I don't do it all the time. I just kind of picture that sometimes we have this, like, spiritual amnesia. I think that's what the disciples had. They had just seen amazing things, and suddenly they had completely forgotten about it. Spiritual amnesia. We need to remember to look up and remember that God is willing and able to help the underdogs of the world, the Moses of the world, even Paul who felt like an underdog. You need to see you are an underdog. God loves underdogs. I mean, just think about it. We love underdogs too, and I think that's a, a reflection of God in us. I mean, St. Peter's. Who didn't love the Cinderella story of St. Peter's? The only number 15 seed to ever make it to the elite eight, a total Cinderella story. If you don't know what I'm talking about, you probably don't care, and so I'm not going to try to explain it to you. <laughs> but it was a Cinderella story. We love Cinderella stories, and so does God. Be the underdog. Be the underdog that looks up 
and is willing to invite God's power into your life. There's a question I want us to think about this story a little bit. I just realized that I'd never taught this story. I probably heard it taught lots of times, but I'd never taught it. So I did a, a lot of study this week. There was an interesting question that came to my mind. Why were the people there? Like, why did they show up? I think when I've always thought about this story, you just kind of imagine that it's this, just this big, happy picnic. You know, they've, they've all got their blankets laid out and Jesus feeds them. It's like this idea that it's some kind of picnic. They weren't there for a picnic. They were there for a revolution. They weren't coming for food. They were coming to fight. Here's what John explains in his account of this story. He says, after the people saw the sign that Jesus performed, they began to say, surely this is the prophet who has come into the world. Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. Jesus knew why they came. They didn't come for food. They came for a fight. They came for a revolution. If this is the Messiah, if this is the one that was promised, he is gonna free us. He's gonna free us from the Roman rule and oppression. They believed that he was the one that was gonna set them free. It's so interesting to think too about the literary context, and I wish I had more time to kind of explain this. He talks about the disciples seeing the power of God, and then he talks about this feeding of the 5,000, but right in between, he tells this story about King Herod. He creates this contrast between the kingdom of God, what it means to fight for the kingdom of God, and what it means to fight for a kingship in this world. King Herod, he was nasty, he was immoral. The story talks about him taking his brother's wife, young girls dancing before him. He beheads John the Baptist. He is a bully. Everything is about him. Feed me. That's how the horizontal kingdom works in this world. Feed me. Meet my needs. But when Jesus is standing before a group of people that are ready for a revolution, what does he do? He takes bread and he breaks it, and he gives it to them. My kingdom isn't about trying to figure out how you have your appetite met. My kingdom is about taking bread and feeding others. And the bread that he gives, it says at the very beginning, the first thing he does is he teaches them many things. He's not handing out weapons in this revolution. He's handing out the word because it is the word, not a weapon that is gonna set people free in the way that they need to be set free. Friends, that is the weapon of our revolution, taking the word that sets people free to people that need to be free. I think Jesus would say to us the same thing that he said to the disciples. You wanna be a part of the revolution? You, you give them something to eat. You feed them. 
You give them the word. Friends, we get to be the revolution. A good buddy of mine has this tattoo on his arm. I just love it. You are the rev, not reverend. You are the revolution. You are the rev. If you're thinking about a tattoo, I think this is a great one. You are the revolution. What do you have? If you're the revolution, what do you have? Jesus is gonna ask you, what do you have in your hand? What do you have to give? And we talk about this all the time. We all have things to give, to be part of this revolution, of taking the word to the world and meeting the needs of people. You've got time. You got time that you can invest in anything that you want to invest your time in. Do you invest your time in the revolution? You've got talents, you've got gifts and abilities. Do you hold those up to God and just say, God, how do you want me to invest these in the revolution? You've got treasure. You've got money. How do you invest what God has entrusted to you? You've got plans. You've got a future. And here's what I believe to be true. Jesus will invite you into his revolution. He has a place for you. But what are you going to do with it? What are you going to do with that nudge, that whisper, that invitation? Here's my greatest fear for me and for us is that we hear those whispers, we hear those nudges, and we just keep saying no. We keep coming up with excuses like Moses did. And we just get to the place where our heart is hard and we don't even hear it anymore. I've been asking for people that pray over our services. Would you just pray that people would hear today? Would they be able to hear the voice of the Holy Spirit? That they would know what the invitation is that Jesus is making to them. And maybe for some of you, that invitation is just to simply to start following Jesus to make him the king of your kingdom. Say thank you to him for what he's done for you on the cross and give your life to him. But what is your next step? Here's my ask. Don't leave here today without something in your heart and your mind that is a tangible next step. I don't want this to be theoretical. What do you have? What do you have? What is your next step? It just takes one step. One. And I believe this. I believe that you are one step, one idea, one risk, maybe even just one decision away from a completely different life with God, a completely different trajectory. It might be a little decision. It might be a big decision. Maybe it's the toughest decision you've ever had to make. Maybe it's the scariest risk that you've ever had to take. What is it? Take it. You're one step away. And this whole comfort thing, because I wrestle with it so much, I think I'll just, I'll just talk to myself. I've got to get over the fact that I think that my life is about just getting to the end of my life safely. That is not what Jesus wants for us. He wants more than that. He wants to write a kingdom story with your life. Are you enough to live in that story? No. 
you're not, but he is enough. And he's the one that can make you enough. And I just want to, maybe it's just because I get older, I start to think about what's it going to be like at the end of my life? What are going to be the things that I regret the most? I can promise you, I think the biggest regrets that we're going to have as followers of Jesus were those God-ordained opportunities that we just left sitting on the table. Those God-given passions that he put in our heart that because of excuses, we just never pursued him. I think those are gonna be our deepest, deepest regrets. Here's what I think happens. I think many of us in here would say, I believe in God, but we don't live like we believe in God. And what happens, and again, I'm talking to myself. I preach to myself first. I think there can be a big gap between our theology, what we think about God, and our reality. Do we believe enough about God to invite him in to everything? Are we willing to hold our life up to him? I think we've got to get out of the mindset, friends, where we let our circumstances and the obstacles get between us and God. We've got to say no more. We're going to take God and we're going to put him between our circumstances and our obstacles. He's what we need to see. We're not enough, but he is enough. And he makes us enough. Do you ever think, just thinking about how Jesus knows us. He knows that we suffer from spiritual amnesia. We just forget sometimes. And so it makes sense to me that Jesus did something for us as a spiritual family to help us remember, remember to not have spiritual amnesia, but to go vertical in our faith. And it's called the Lord's Supper. It's called communion. In this story that we just read, Jesus looked up to heaven, he gave thanks, and he broke the bread. That picture echoes all the way to the end of his life and ministry here on earth, the last Supper, where again, those same words are used again, where he lifted up the bread and he broke it. And he said, this is what's gonna make you enough. This is my body broken for you. And then he held up the cup and he says, this is the cup of the new covenant. This is my blood poured out for you. If we ever wonder what makes us enough, Jesus said, you've got to remember, it's my broken body and my shed blood on your behalf. He said, remember that. Go vertical as often as you will. And friends, we are going to go vertical today as we remember what it is that Jesus did for us that makes us enough. Now, we're doing communion uh, kind of the way that we've done it way back in the olden times uh, around here pre-COVID. If you've been around before then, you know what it is that we're going to do, but I'm just going to explain it to everybody. There's a lot of new people around here. What we do around here, we practice an open communion. If you're a follower of Jesus, just come be a part of this with us. What we do is we've got stations that are up front here, and we've got little crackers, and we've got juice and wine and we just dip it into the wine or the juice. Um, we like to say around here, we are dippers, not sippers. 
So don't grab, grab the cups. If uh, going up there and grabbing a cracker and even in this season makes you uncomfortable, on the outside, we've got some of these that are uh, just individual packages that have bread and wine in them. You are welcome to take that uh, as well. And on the very outside tables as well, we have gluten-free uh, as well, if that is a need for you as well. Let's celebrate and go vertical together. Thanks for engaging with this content. If it was encouraging to you, we'd love for you to leave a review. Hit that subscribe button and share this content with others. We'd also love to connect with you. The best place to do that is journeyweb.net. Don't forget to follow us on YouTube, Facebook, and Instagram. Just search Journey Church Bozeman and you'll find us there. If you'd like to give to our ministry, you can do that now at journeyweb.net slash give. Once again, thanks for engaging with Journey Church.